How many of you have ever faced the terrible conundrum that we run into at our house more often than I would like to admit, where you open up the pint of cream and you're faced with a dilemma? There's too much for one bowl, but not really enough for two. Have you guys ever faced this horrifying decision? Now, I know as a father, I know what my role is in that moment. I have to be the bigger man and get out the bigger bowl and finish the whole thing, right? That's just, that's the way I can serve my family by, by taking that hit, you know, for, for the team, take one for the team that way, right? Well, this morning's passage is going to be kind of like the half-empty pint of ice cream. By the way, if you said, wait, half-empty and you're only getting one serving out of that? Now, the passage we're looking at this morning, we could take about six weeks to go through. We could actually dive in and make this into multiple messages. But today, what we're going to try to do is get out the big bowl and cover it all at once. All right? So get your spoon out, get your big bowl, and loosen up the belt a little bit. We'll get ready to roll with this. Okay? So go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 15, the last couple verses in 15, uh, verse 26. If you have a pew Bible, if you're using the, the black Bible in the back of the pew there in front of you, it's going to be on page 959. Okay? Um, by the way, if you don't have a Bible that you can use easily, you're welcome to take that pew Bible with you. We have more that we can replenish it with and would love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can take with you. If you want one that's a little bit nicer looking, let me know after church. We've got some fancier ones that I can give you and would be happy to be able to give you if you need a Bible, okay? Um, and also, that's true too. If you have a Bible that, that maybe in a translation that's hard for you to read, the one that we use is a little bit more approachable than some. Uh, so you're welcome to, to see me after church and we'll get you a nice looking one, Okay? But as we're diving into God's word, we're hitting a, a difficult passage. Remember, as we've been going through John chapter 13 and following on the last night of Jesus's life and ministry on earth before he goes to the cross, he's been preparing his disciples for what's going to come. And actually, the title we're going to give this morning's message is Life After Jesus Leaves. How many of you have ever had somebody move away that you cared about deeply? Okay. I remember very distinctly, you guys know, uh, many of you are aware, this is my hometown, and I had a friend in fourth and fifth grade, actually like third, fourth grade, who was my best friend. His name was Sean Living. In fact, God used Sean's family to be able to help my family get back into church as I saw them going to church and asked mom and dad why we didn't go to church. And so we started going to church, and shortly thereafter, God saved me and my brother. My dad was already saved. He got right with the Lord, and my mom got saved, and it's been nonstop ever since. But as I I remember one time we found out Sean's family was moving to Tennessee when I was in fifth grade. And I remember seeing as we were driving down the road, we actually passed the bus that was actually Sean's bus going to his house. And I remember being so upset because I told mom, I don't know how many more times I'm going to see Sean before he moves away. So of course, mom called his mom and we got together and we hung out. But I remember not knowing how I was going to even make it after, uh, after he you know, left because he was my best friend and we did everything we could together. Then how many of you, though, have had to send a kid off to college? My mom, um, for those of you guys who know anything about the geography of Tennessee, I went to seminary in Memphis, which is about a 10-hour drive from here, depending on how you do it. Um, and Johnson, Tennessee is about an hour and a half away from Memphis. Um, from my dad's account, when they dropped me off at my apartment and then left, uh, mom cried all the way to Johnson, Tennessee, okay? Uh, at one point, she was crying hard enough that my dad said, do you want me to go back and get him? And she said, yes, I do. 
but they didn't because um, I was, you know, 20-some years old and needed to handle this on my own. And about, what, three months later was when I met the woman who became my bride. So it worked out for the best. Had to go all the way to Memphis to find her, but it was worth the trip for sure. But those of you who've watched that loaded car pull out of your driveway or seen them carry that last box up to the dorm room and had to turn around and drive off, know the pain of watching your kids drive away. And you start thinking about how quiet it's going to be in the house. And sometimes that's a feeling of relief, but other times there's that remorse. You know, for us, though, there's been other times that are even more difficult than that. When somebody doesn't just move, but when they pass away. Some of you have buried your mom and your dad. Some of you may have even buried your spouse or possibly even a child. And you know that ache when you get back to the house and it's too quiet. And you say, I don't know how I can live like this. The disciples were getting ready to face that very moment. They had been walking with Jesus for three years. They had left houses and jobs and all kinds of things to be able to put their whole stock in who Jesus was and following him. And in a matter of hours after Jesus spoke these words, he was going to be dead. The disciples were going to be alone. They were going to be scared. So over the last few chapters, we've been taking time to see how Jesus finished out this phase of ministry, how he spoke with them and how he encouraged them and how he challenged them. And what we're going to see this morning is that as he was preparing them for life without him, life without Jesus on the earth, there with them, sitting across the table from them, as he was preparing them for that, he reminded them of two things that he'd already brought up. But there are things that we should be able to rest in as well. Now, let's be honest and admit this very clearly, okay? I always want you to remember, whenever we look at a passage, even though we just take a section at a time, we always want to make sure that we're looking at it in light of the context. In other words, what's going on? Who's Jesus talking to? Who's John writing to? All of those kind of questions, right? So in the immediate context of what we're looking at, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's going to happen for the next three or four days, He knows that in just a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested. Everybody's going to run away and abandon him, although some will show up a little bit later to be close to him. Then we know that he's going to die. They're all going to be scattered. They're going to be scared. And then they're going to meet back together right before they see him after the resurrection. Okay? So Jesus, in the immediate context, is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen over the next few days. However, keep in mind, all the way back in the fall when we started the Gospel of John, who John was writing to. We say that most likely John was writing to the church that was beginning to experience the beginnings of persecution. It wasn't fully official yet. It was starting to happen from the top down. They had already been enduring sporadic persecution, but it was about to get much worse. So as he's writing to that and to where we are in 2022, we have to acknowledge that although some of the details may be a little bit different for us, We're still living in the same kind of area. Jesus isn't sitting right across the table from us. We're not physically able to see his presence right here with us. We know that he is, but as we're looking then at the way that Jesus comforted the disciples for life when he left, we want to draw those comforts. In fact, there's two things that we want to draw out from this passage, and we're going to spend some time, a lot of time on the first one, not as much time on the back one. So if you sit there and you're trying to map it out in the time frame. Um, by the way, if we go long, it's okay, because then we can catch those people Tim was referring to who are going to show up at noon thinking that it was 11, right? So there you go. They can catch the back part. As we're diving into this morning, I want you to see two main things. First off, just like the disciples, Jesus promises that while we're here without him, he promises that we will have a new counselor, 
okay? And he also promises that we'll have new comfort. Now, as we dive in, let's start here in chapter 15, start in verse 26, okay? We're going to read some fairly long sections this morning, so follow along with me, and then we'll come back and try to explain what all this means. When the count comes, the one I'll send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. Now, keep that in mind because we'll get back to that at the very end, okay? Then now jump down to verse 5. But now I'm going away to him, and not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet, because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. By the way, the these things, it's everything we've covered from chapter 13 on. Think about how long we've taken to do that, by the way. We've taken like, what, four or five weeks that we've looked through all of this stuff, especially when you go back to January when we jumped back in at John 14. We've taken several weeks to go through all this. The disciples heard it all in one chunk. Can you imagine trying to take in all of this in one moment? By the way, remembering the fact that he just said, everybody's going to run away and hide from me. You're going to be persecuted, and I'm going to die. So it's been a real long night for the disciples. He said, so I've said these things to you, and it's made you sorrowful. It's filled your heart. Verse 7, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I didn't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, and you'll no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he'll not speak his own, but he'll speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Now, that is a whole lot. And it's kind of confusing in some of the language that Jesus uses. So what we're going to do this morning is take a little bit of extra time examining this first idea that when Jesus left, he sent us a new counselor a new counselor. We're going to try to unpack what this looks like. Now, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, keep in mind that as we're going through this, let me get up to my notes. uh, As we're talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus has already introduced him back in chapter 14. He already said that you would have this other counselor, which is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of truth, who is going to come. As we talk about the Holy Spirit, remember, he is fully God. He is another member of the Godhead, just like the Father, just like the Son, just like the Holy Spirit. He is not an it. There are some phrase songs and choruses and things sometimes that refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. I have a problem with that, and I think he probably does too, because he is a he. He is fully God. So as Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit to us, he's not talking about, Jason, increasing our midichlorian count, right? Some people have this idea. How many of you guys have watched the Star Wars movies, Okay. If you remember, they talk about these midichlorians that give the Jedis the powers to do the things that they do, right? Well, as, as people talk about the Holy Spirit, sometimes they act like the Holy Spirit somehow is like midichlorians or, or the force, that he's just kind of this, this thing that, that just kind of moves in this mystical way. Now, yeah, there are spiritual elements to this. There are mystical elements that, that are unique about the way the Spirit works. But first and foremost, he is a he. With intellect, emotion, and will, he is a person. Now, I say he is a he, uh, God's chosen to use masculine pronouns for him. He doesn't have gender because he's God and spirit, right? But, okay. It's, 
2022 makes it really interesting, all the things you have to give side caveats about that you didn't have to in the back days, all right? As we're looking at the Holy Spirit and the personhood of him, Jesus tells us in this particular chapter several things that he does. Now, there's a lot that the Holy Spirit does that we're not going to be able to cover today. So this is not a comprehensive doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It'd be a great study for us to go through at some other time, but today, unfortunately, we don't get to do that. Now, it starts and revolves around the, the word there that's translated counselor. Now, the word there in Greek is the word paraclete. That's not what you need to buy your kid because they outgrew them from last baseball season, right? It's not a paracletes. Um, it is paraclete. And it literally has the idea of one who is called alongside to help. When we talk about counselor, what's the, uh, the picture that comes to your mind? When we say the word counselor, what do you immediately think? So what's that? Attorney, okay? Advocate is one of the phrases that's sometimes used. That, that's part of the, the picture here. What else do you think of when you think of counselor? How many of you are old enough to think Bob Newhart? All right, yeah, there's a handful of you. Come on. If not, it's on Hulu. You ought to watch it. It's kind of funny. Not, not always clean, though, so I can't fully recommend it. When we think counselor, our first thought is therapist. I think most likely in our world today that when we think counselor, we think somebody who's going to sit aside from, you know, sit on the nice cushy couch while he sits on the chair and, and writes down and goes, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Now, listen, this is in no way, shape, or form to disparage the work of counselors. I am so incredibly grateful for the incredible godly men and women who are serving in this incredibly important field and helping people to walk through issues of mental health struggles, trauma, addiction, or just other life struggles that they need somebody else to to sit and guide them through, okay? Counselors are incredibly important, but the Holy Spirit's not just that. Uh, Other translations use the word comforter. Let's be honest. Put the church stuff aside for a second. When you hear comforter, what do you think? A blanket, right? The Holy Spirit is not a blanket. Somebody, Somebody might think that comforter is the idea of somebody who comes alongside and comforts you when you're mourning. Okay, well, that's That's part of the Holy Spirit's role. But again, it's not that as well. Other translations use the word helper. Uh, Well, that sounds good, but what do you think of when you think of a helper? I usually think of sitting there teaching a Sunday school class, and I need a helper this morning. Who can help me pass these out? Or who, who can help go run, make copies? Usually when we think of helper, we think of somebody, truthfully, who's at a lower status than we are on the org chart, Right? When a mom comes in to help in a school classroom, she's not on the same authority level as the teacher. So when we think somebody who's a helper, it's somebody who comes alongside. Maybe they're an apprentice, you know, so I'm the electrician who's got the certification, and I've got an electrician's helper who comes alongside, and he does some good work, but he's not quite there yet. So when we think helper, sometimes we think, oh, so the Holy Spirit's supposed to come help me do what I need to do, which makes him less than he actually is. And why do we say all that? Well, because he is an advocate, but not the way we think about it. He is a counselor, but not in the way we think about it. He's a helper, but not in the way we think about it. He's a comforter, but not in the way we think about it. He is the paraclete. He's the one who's called alongside to help, but he is God who is called alongside to help. As you listen and hear anybody talk about the Holy Spirit, I want to make sure that we're very clear. The work of the Holy Spirit is not about you, okay? He works in you. He works through you to do great things. He encourages, he challenges, he convicts, he leads. He does all of these things, but it's always about what we see in this passage. 
and that is bringing glory to God. It's not about you. Sometimes people look at the Holy Spirit as though he's some kind of magic talisman. I want to get more of the Holy Spirit so I can have more power to do this or I can impress friends with this, but that's not at all the case. He's the one who's called to come alongside to help us because we can't do it on our own. He's the one who's called alongside to help us to follow God and honor God and live the way that he's called us to live to enable us and empower us to do what he's called us to do. That's what it means when he says he's a counselor, a helper, an advocate, a comforter. Okay? Clear on that? Awesome. So as we're diving into that, then let's look at the the roles that the Holy Spirit fulfills that Jesus talks about here. One of the things you'll notice is that some of the roles the Holy Spirit fulfills are about functioning in the world at large. They're kind of external to the believer. They're things that he may do in and through us, but they're, they're about impacting the world. I, I want to emphasize that because, like I said, so often we get caught up in just the things that the Holy Spirit does in us that we forget that there's things that the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in the world through us, okay? So the first thing that we see is actually one of these external things that the Holy Spirit does, and that is that he's going to testify about Jesus, when the counselor comes, verse, uh, 15, verse 26, the one I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So this is one of the works that the Spirit does within the world and not just in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who's behind the spread of the message that Jesus has given himself so that people would know God and be right with him, and now Jesus rules and reigns over all of creation. That's the message of the gospel. That's what he's proclaiming. The Holy Spirit is the one working to make that good news known. However, look at the very next verse. He says, the Holy Spirit will testify about me. Then verse 27, you also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Here's one of the clearest pictures in one quick juxtaposition of the Holy Spirit's role as the helper. Now listen to me. God is not limited to work through people. He can do whatever he wants. If God wanted to show up in this moment and stand right here on the platform, God absolutely could. He's not limited, as one commentator said, by human frailty. However, what you see in this passage is the way that God has chosen to work most regularly and normally is as he works through his people. See, when he calls us to testify and the Spirit testifies, that means the Spirit is testifying through us. How many of you have ever heard the, uh, the, the statement, it's wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't actually say it. We don't know who did. But share the gospel and if necessary, use words. Have you guys ever heard that? I'm sorry, that's just a lie. Now, we're going to talk about the fact that the way that the Holy Spirit works through our works, but the only way for you to share the gospel is by telling people about Jesus. Okay? There are a lot of people out there who do good things. The only way that you can help people see Jesus through that is by making sure you're actually pointing them to Jesus with your words. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do good things. We'll talk about that in a minute. But part of the Spirit's role is to empower us to testify about Jesus, to tell people about what Jesus has done. You want a good picture of this, you can go back to Mark chapter 13. I'll put it up. You don't have to turn over there right now. You'll also notice, by the way, it's interesting. In Mark 13, you have the same juxtaposition of the role of the Holy Spirit and persecution. You find every time it seems like that Jesus is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit to testify, it's in the context of persecution. So what should we expect out of that? Persecution, right. But when we do, here's what Jesus said. So when they arrest you and hand you over to the authorities, don't worry beforehand about what you will say. 
But say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. All right, now pause that, leave that up there for just a second, Jamie. It isn't you speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. This is the role of the helper. This is the paraclete. This is the one coming alongside us, giving us the words. I don't know about you. I've, I'm not going to ask who's been arrested in this room. I've never been arrested, okay? Getting arrested in those days was even more serious in the, than it is in these days because mob justice was kind of a thing. And so as we see with the first Christian who's killed with Stephen, he just gets put to death by an angry mob. Then we see the first martyr that's a, kind of an official capacity. Herod just decides he wants to kill off John the Baptist at one point. Another Herod decides later he wants to kill James. You know, they just kind of did. So getting arrested was a really scary thing. I don't know about you, but when I'm scared, I'm not real good at coming up with logical, coherent sentences, much less arguments. So as the disciples are facing the fact that they're going to be arrested and persecuted, which, by the way, all of the disciples that that Jesus called to himself all died a martyr's death with the exception of the Gospel of John, who died in exile. So they all went through this. So in those moments, I would be wondering, how do I defend myself? And Jesus said, you don't have to worry about that. Because the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the paraclete who's called alongside will speak through you. He's going to testify about me. So as you testify, it's not you doing it. It's the Spirit working through. You know what else that tells me, by the way? Bill Bright used to say that the only failure in witnessing is a failure to witness. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody about Jesus, and then later that night I'll be standing in the shower and think, oh, I wish I had said that. Or I'll get in the car and think, man, that would have been the perfect comeback. And realize, you know what? God didn't want me to say that. Not that I'm perfect and always surrendered to the Holy Spirit, but the reality is if God wanted me to say that because I'm trying to live a life that's spirit-filled and honoring to him, then he'd have said that. He'd have taken over if it needed to be said. The only time I fail is when I refuse to let him speak. That's the only time I can mess this up is when I refuse to allow him to, to work through me in obedience. But see, the Holy Spirit, one of the roles is to testify about Christ to the world, and he does that through you. Now, can Jesus show up in in dreams? Absolutely. 100% can do it. Happening all across the Muslim world. That's one of the prayer requests that missionaries to Muslim worlds uh, or Muslim areas pray during the month of Ramadan, because during the month of Ramadan, uh, Muslims actually ask that God would send them dreams and are more open to spiritual things. And there are story after story. I heard another one recently about people that God is drawing to himself through dreams. And it's usually what happens is Isa, because they believe that Jesus is a prophet, appears to this person in a dream and says, go ask this person to tell you about me. That's most often what we hear. So yes, God could show up in a dream. God can do whatever he wants. But what God's chosen to ordain is the way he works is the Holy Spirit working through you to testify to the world. When's the last time you actually told somebody about Jesus? When's the last time you you sat down with somebody that you believe doesn't know who Jesus is? Not, you know, we don't know somebody's soul. We don't know their heart. But it's somebody that you believe is not in a genuine relationship with Christ. When's the last time you sat down with them and told them about who Jesus is? You know what's a great lead-in for that, by the way? I'm trying to give you guys some practical stuff. Great way to lead in. If you're at a restaurant, which I know is getting harder and harder to do. If you're at a restaurant, ask your server, hey, we're getting ready to pray for our meal. Is there anything we can pray for you about? 
you would be amazed at the way people will open up, probably more than you want them to. I just wanted a burger. I didn't need the whole life story, but that's okay, right? Then if you frequent the same restaurant, you frequent the same car hop at Sonic, same line at Kroger, wherever you are, you start building that relationship and look for opportunities to point that person to Christ. You'd be amazed at how God can use that, how the Holy Spirit can work through you to testify about himself. So as we live out that radical love and joy, we also see, though, that that as we testify, it has to be backed up by the fruit we bear. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about bearing fruit as a part of the vine, and we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things that the Spirit works out of us that, that come out in the way that we act. See, here's how this works. If you sit there and you tell the server that we're going to pray for you when we pray for our meal, and then you send the meal back six different times for little petty things, it's okay to send the meal back if it's wrong. My wife is helping me to understand that because I'm really not all that assertive. I don't care if it's broccoli. I'll, take, I'll just eat the broccoli. That's all right. It's okay to send it back. But how you go about it has everything to do with it. If you sit there and say, listen, I'm, I'm so sorry for the inconvenience, but I actually I asked for mashed potatoes and it came with broccoli. Is there any way that I could get this straightened out? As opposed to, hey, listen, you must not have been paying attention because you sent me broccoli. I told you I wanted mashed potatoes. Please don't let that person know you follow Jesus, okay? Just don't. And if I catch anybody in this church leaving a fake money tract without like a real $100 bill inside that thing, I will personally make you eat the entire thing, okay? Nothing leaves a worse taste in somebody's mouth then Christians not acting like we're supposed to. The world knows how a Christian's supposed to act in many ways. So let's do it and allow the Holy Spirit to testify through our actions that back up the words that we're using to testify about Jesus. So Jesus said, we have this new counselor who's gonna come alongside us to help us to testify about Jesus. Now, it gets really interesting in verse six and seven. He said, yet I've spoken these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. That's understandable, right? Jesus has told them all of these really heavy truths. And he says, it's made you sad. But listen, listen how incredible verse seven is. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go to the counselor, or if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. Now stop and think about this. Have you ever just wished you could sit down across the table from Jesus and just say, I, I've got this question. Or, you know, John, it says that, that in those days, things were a little bit different than ours. They would recline at the, the table with their feet kind of pointed out. It says that at the Last Supper, John actually laid his head on Jesus's chest. You ever just wish you could just kind of climb up in Jesus' lap as, and just be held for a minute? That's nothing wrong with that desire. There's not. We were created to be able to walk with God and talk with God. That's what we see in the garden as Adam and Eve got to walk with God and see him and talk with him. We're created to be restored to that. That's coming when Jesus comes back and we have the new heavens and new earth come and God will dwell with his people. We're created for that. But Jesus made an incredible statement in verse seven. It's better for you that I go away. 
J.D. Greer in his book, uh, Jesus Continued, said it this way, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Isn't that crazy to think? I mean, what could possibly be better than walking right next to Jesus, than getting to watch him heal the blind and the lame, raise Lazarus from the dead, see him coming out on the wind and the waves, calming the storm? What could possibly be better than that? Having him live inside you is what could be better than that. Why? Well, because the verses that we skipped over right there, we saw that, that, that Jesus was telling them they were about to be arrested. They were about to be thrown in prison. When Jesus took on physical form, he was limited to one location at time, right? Now, he's still God and he's still omnipresent. We don't know exactly how all this works, but Jesus and his humanity is only in one place at one time. So let's assume that the disciples all get arrested. Jesus could only be in one jail cell. Jesus could only be in one execution chamber. Jesus could only be in one place. Yet when he left, the Holy Spirit came. And now every single believer has God indwelling him from the moment of salvation. That means no matter where you are, Now, we know that God is present because he's omnipresent. That means he's present in every part of creation at all time. There's no place where he isn't. But in this unique way of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer, that means that Jesus is in the cell with you. That means all of our brothers and sisters who are right now being persecuted for their faith, all of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters who are right now hiding in a bomb shelter, Jesus is right there with them because the Holy Spirit is inside them. That's even better than having Jesus sitting right there because he's inside to guide. He's inside to speak through. He's inside to empower, to convict, to comfort. What a beautiful truth. Now, beyond that, once, not just in persecution, that also means that the Holy Spirit could be a part of the disciples as they took the gospel around the world. You know, Jesus would send out groups a couple different times in his ministry, but he didn't go with them. Now, as Jesus sends us out, whether that's across the street to the server at our table, the cashier at line, or around the world to Zimbabwe or to Ukraine or to Romania or to wherever God may call us to go, the Holy Spirit goes with us every step of the way to be able to testify about Christ even at the ends of the earth. That's actually better than just having Jesus present with us. It doesn't feel that way sometimes, but that's what Jesus is getting at in verses 8 through 11, that as the disciples took the gospel out and started living it out and testifying about Christ, the Holy Spirit would begin convicting the world through what they did. That's why he says in verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment about sin because they don't believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you'll no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's take an example out of early church history. One of the things that's very countercultural, especially in the Roman culture, was the way that we view sexual relationships between a husband and a wife. In those days, the Romans thought that it was okay to express those desires outside of the bounds of a marriage. In fact, it was a healthy thing to do. It was encouraged to do. They had all kinds of different ideas that were ungodly and unbiblical about this particular expression. So you know what happened? Christians, as they started living different, started teaching different, and started proclaiming different, they got in trouble with the Roman officials. 
they would get persecuted. In fact, we already saw this with John the Baptist, right? That's what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, it was immoral for Herod to have his brother's wife. And so what happened? They chopped off his head. As Christians started living this way, they started getting thrown into prison because people didn't like what they were saying. Not just about this, but about other issues. However, as the Spirit was convicting through them, at the same time, they were caring for orphans. In those days, by the way, a father had a right that's called patria patria potestas. That means the father, complete power and authority in the family. If I was born to my wife and I didn't want it, they would bring the child to me, they would lay it at my feet. And if I didn't pick it up, they would lay it out in the street to die. Christians began going around, taking these babies, raising them, caring for them. They cared for the widows that nobody else cared for. They started trying to do what they could to improve society and love the poor. And so while the officials were hating them and persecuting them, the gospel spread because they were bearing the fruit of the Spirit, showing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and all these things. And so through them, the Holy Spirit was convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, saying, this is not okay, and there's a different way that the king of the universe has called us to live. Some people hated them. Some people welcomed them. And they welcomed the Christ that they served. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. It's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's not just about some kind of warm fuzzies. Rather, the the Comforter is coming alongside to help us to be able to testify about Christ in the world. Now, those are some of the primary roles that Jesus outlines for us here Those are kind of the external things, but it is true as well that the Holy Spirit does a lot of work internally in us. That's what Jesus is getting at down in verse 12. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, he's talking about the Spirit coming. Again, remember, the disciples are just absolutely beat. It's late in the evening at this point. It's been a long day. They've heard a whole lot of teaching. And Jesus said, the law of non-retention, you can't handle anymore. But that's okay, because the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. This reminds us back to chapter 14, verse 26, where he said that the Holy Spirit would remind them of everything that Jesus had taught them. He's going to remind them of all these things. He was going to guide them into what they've learned. Now, the promise that the Spirit would guide them into an understanding that they couldn't handle that night. One of the main ways that the Holy Spirit accomplished and does continue to accomplish this work is through the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God that He has preserved wholly without error, and as we were talking about this morning in our Discover class, is without error and is the only thing that is our sole rule of faith and practice, okay? That means the Bible stands alone. It's not the Bible and church tradition or the Bible and any other book. This is our rule of faith and practice because the Holy Spirit worked through the men who wrote the Scriptures to be able to help us to see who God is, who we are, how He's working in the world, what He's going to do in the future, all of these kinds of things. So as Jesus was talking to the disciples that night, obviously the last third of the Bible hadn't been written yet, right? The Old Testament was there to give us the examples, to point us to to the fact that we would need Jesus to come, but the New Testament hadn't been written. So the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles to help them to be able to write down all of the things that they had seen Jesus do. That's what we have in the Gospels. 
Then he wrote down what happened in the early church. As we see how in the book of Acts, the church took what Jesus had told them and started living that out in different ways. Then we have the rest of the New Testament consists of epistles that are letters where they would address particular issues where the Holy Spirit working through Paul and through Peter and through John and through others would would work in such a way that we would understand more about the truth that Jesus had introduced during his earthly ministry and help flesh that out into different scenarios and help us to see what it looked like more fully. Well, so Sean, does that mean that that he's done with this now? So the Bible is complete. There's not going to be any more books added to this. This is it. So does that mean that the work of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth is complete? Not at all. Because you and I cannot understand what's in here apart from what he does in us. If you're here today and and you're not yet a follower of Christ and you've tried to read the Bible and it's made no sense to you, there could be several reasons for that. One is because there are some parts of this that are really hard to understand. Even as somebody who's been a Christian for almost 30 years now, there's parts of this that I still have a hard time with. Okay, So, So there's part of that. But the reality is, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, this is not going to make sense until you become one. Where do I get that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this, Now we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. See, there's a part of this that's not going to make sense until you receive the Holy Spirit, until you get saved and you come into that relationship with God. There are spiritual truths that you can't understand because right now you're dead in your trespasses and sins, which means spiritually you're dead and unresponsive. And until you come into that relationship with Christ, you're not going to see this. It's not going to make sense. Okay, so maybe that explains part of what you've been dealing with. Maybe that explains why you didn't want to come to church this morning because it doesn't feel like it ever means anything. Maybe it's because you've never come into a relationship with Christ and you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Now, I, I wish that, that like when we got saved, it was like some giant zip file that we just downloaded and then extracted into our brain and all of a sudden we knew everything. Or if you're a Matrix fan, you know, you sat down in the chair and they plug in and all of a sudden you know Kung Fu, right? I, I wish that that's how the Holy Spirit worked, but that's not how he works. I think Jesus use the word guides here on purpose. He guides us into all truth. There's a growth process. There's things that you come to understand right away. There's things that you won't understand for years. There's aspects of God's word that we may not understand fully until we stand before him. But the Holy Spirit works in us to be able to to make the scripture come alive. For those of you who know Jesus, have you ever read a passage that you've read like a million times that all of a sudden something just leaps off the page and grabs you? You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit guiding you into all truth. By the way, this is why I encourage you to to keep some kind of journal when you read God's word, because God just took the time to tell you something. And if the God of the universe, who's got like 8 billion people on this planet right now, took time to tell you something, you might ought to pay attention to that, right? This is what the counselor's doing in us. He's guiding us into all truth. He's helping us to understand who Jesus is. 
So as the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture, we have it now in front of us so that then as we're reading God's Word, we come to understand who God is and who we are and what He's doing in the world and that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and been raised from the dead so that we can have new life and so now rules and reigns over all of creation and is one day bodily returning to set up His kingdom in a full and final way and we're going to be in that one forever and it's going to be awesome, okay? Those are the kind of things that you find throughout God's Word and you grow to understand them more and more as you walk with Him because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. We have a new counselor. We could actually summarize the Holy Spirit's role there with what he says in verse 14. He will glorify me because he'll take from what's mine and declare it to you. The work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to be able to, to, to show how awesome he is. Remember, glory we talk about is God's majestic presence. It's his weight, it's his light, it's the heat. From It's kind of the idea, the imagery that's used there sometimes to talk about God's glory. So to glorify God is to give him the weight that he deserves. So the Holy Spirit's role in your heart is to give Jesus the weight he deserves. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we should never talk to the Holy Spirit. I think it's, it's fine to pray to the Holy Spirit. It's fine to pray to Jesus, fine to pray to the Father, even though most often we address our prayers to the Father. So much beauty in all this. As you look at this, this is what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's glorifying Jesus in your heart, helping you to give him the weight that he deserves in your life, and glorifying Jesus in the world around you, helping you to give him the weight that he deserves in all of creation, all of the people you talk with. All right? Now, that was the big bowl. So quickly, let's jump into the second thing that we see. Not only is he giving us a new counselor, he also gave us a new comfort. Again, he's specifically talking to the disciples here and comforting them and preparing them for the next four days. They're going to go through some incredibly difficult moments as they watch Jesus die, as they are uttered, they're scared if they're next, all of those kind of questions that they're going to have. So instead of reading it extensively, let's kind of hit just a couple of key passages. Um, Jesus is describing for them what's going to take place, and then jump down to verse 22. We could preach a whole out of this passage right here. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. You also have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away from you. Like I said, there's a whole sermon in that verse. First is the reality that we have sorrow now. Life is going to be painful. I always use the Princess Bride quote, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, right? Life is always going to be difficult. There's going to be pain. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be confusion. You will have sorrow now. But I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. The comfort that Jesus offers his disciples those days, the believers in 88 AD, as John's writing this letter, and us, is that we'll have sorrow now, but joy forever. That joy is not by finally achieving some status at work, by finally graduating, finally getting married, finally getting a house, finally getting a boat, finally getting a whatever. The joy that will never be taken away is that we'll see Jesus again. By the way, some of us may be closer to that than we realize. You know, I'm 39 years old. My grandfather had a heart attack at this age that had he not already been in the hospital, would have killed him. It's possible. But one day I'm going to see him again. One day I'm going to see him face to face. Like you realize there's going to be a day when you open your eyes in the morning here and the next time you open your eyes, you're going to be in heaven. Like at Jesus' feet, in God's presence forever. 
What a great comfort. He picks that theme back up down in verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now pause real quick. Go back to chapter 16, verse 1. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. I've told you these things, verse 33, so that you may have peace. He bookends the chapter. I'm trying to keep you from stumbling, and I'm offering you this peace. You will have suffering in this world. I love that Jesus doesn't pull any punches about that. You will have suffering in this world. It's going to happen. Don't expect otherwise. Be courageous. I have overcome the world. Wait a second. I have conquered the world. But he hadn't died yet, right? He hasn't been raised yet. How could he say, I've conquered the world? Or back here where he said, the ruler of this world has been judged in verse 11. How can he say that? Because the events were already set in motion long ago. As Jesus heads to the cross, he's just finalizing the plan that has been from before the foundation of the world. That God would one day die for us. And so as he says, the ruler of this world has already been judged. I've already conquered the world. It's as good as done. Now we look back on it and see that he has. We know that he came out of the grave three days later. We know that he was victorious. But all of human history looks to this moment. This is the crux of human history. By the way, you know what that word crux is? Cross, right? This is the central part of human history. The cross of Jesus Christ. See, the comfort we have is that anything that takes place Jesus has overcome the world. And we can have peace right now. Why? Because he gave us an advocate, a helper, a counselor, a comforter, a paraclete. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Again, we do this not because we're trying to do anything weird, but just to give you some time to respond and and solidify what God may be saying in your heart i like for you guys to be able to walk out of here with one big takeaway, one main thing that this is what I need to change this week. This is what I need to celebrate this week. This is what I need to repent of this week. This is what I need to do this week. So let's take inventory for a minute. Um, Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus first in your own heart? Are you rejoicing in him? Are you growing in him? Are you letting him guide you into all truth as you're studying the Bible and, and getting to know him better that way? Are you learning to love him more? Are you obeying him more rapidly? Then the question is, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus through your actions and your reactions to those around you? Do you use people? Do you lose your temper? Or do you just keep your head down and not care about other people? Or are you allowing the Holy Spirit to show Jesus to others through the way that you love them? Now, again, don't just stop with your actions. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus through your words by telling people about Jesus? Maybe this week you need to try to ask God, God, would you give me one opportunity this week to be able to tell somebody about you? If you've never done that, by the way, I've got some resources I can point you to that would help you to get started that kind of conversation. There's all kinds of smartphone apps that can help you walk through a gospel conversation. I've got tracks we can give you. You know what? For you, it may be that you've never really talked to anybody about God. 
So you want to start this week maybe by saying something like, God bless you, or Jesus loves you, as you get your change from the cashier, or as you talk to the nurse at the doctor's office. Just end the conversation with something simple like, God bless you, or Jesus loves you. Now, there's more, obviously, to sharing the gospel than just that, but for you, maybe just getting the name of Jesus out of your mouth feels so weird that that's where you need to start. Would you pray for God to give you opportunities to do that? So is the Holy Spirit working in you to glorify Jesus as you're getting to know him better? Is he working through your actions and your reactions? And are you letting him work through your words? Take just a moment, do business with God, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, when we go all the way back to the garden, you've always been the one to come looking for us. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran away and hid. And you came looking and calling for them. When time was right, you came and your son. He walked with us. He died for us and now rules and reigns over us. And after he left this earth, he gave us your spirit in a new way. Thank you for being the God who comes to us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve for you to be so gracious, but you are. So Father, we surrender in a fresh way this week to allow your Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Would you help us to listen as he glorifies Christ in our hearts? As we read the Bible and we're convicted by what we read and know that we need to change, we ask that you'll help us to confess and to thank you and to repent. In those places where you're calling us to honor you through our actions, we pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and empower us to do the right thing, to bear fruit for you love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And as we do those things, we pray that we would then carry it on to be able to testify about Jesus with our words, that he would speak through us to neighbors, to relatives, to kids, to spouses even perhaps, that he would speak through us to cashiers, to waiting room attendants, to cable repair guys, to neighbors, to co-workers, to classmates, to roommates. You'd speak through us so that Jesus would be glorified and exalted. Thank you for all you've done this morning. Help us to obey you this week, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.